0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage,
3: So welcome to On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel.
4: And I'm Nikki Bandini.
3: On today's show, we look ahead to the return of the Bundesliga and Serie A. Can Juventus and Bayern Munich be challenged? We also look at the horrible scenes in PSG's against Marseille from Ligue 1. And we're back with some games of the week. A lot to talk about from Serie A, Nikki. I do know that. And you've got a few ideas of where we're going to go with it. Um, Just on the issue of Juventus, first of all, they're the team to beat. Can they be beaten?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's... The thing is, I do feel a bit like I'm repeating myself from twelve a bit more than 12 months ago. um, Because a year ago it was, hey, Maurizio Sarri is manager. Is Sarri capable of, of leading this team where it needs to go? A manager who hasn't ever led a team of this well that's not true he um, led Chelsea at that point but who hasn't ever won a major domestic title who hasn't um, sort of characterised himself as a front runner who's anti-establishment can he be the person to lead Juventus to a title and he did it was in fact um, I would say the least impressive of all Juventus' titles in this run of nine consecutive so there was some truth in it but yes Juventus still got to the end and, and got there this season it's the same question being asked for different reasons. This team, this juggernaut, this um, force that we expect to sweep all before it in Italy, and the only real question should be, are they going to win in Europe? That That isn't the question, because they've appointed someone who has literally never managed a professional football team before. Someone who was supposed to have a bit of time to learn the profession in the under-23 team in a job that he was appointed for literally nine days before he gets <laughs> the main job. So... It is, it is about Juventus. It's going to be about Juventus because they are the richest club in Italy. They're the team that's won nine, nine times in a row. The team that has this expectation of winning, that has the biggest wage, wage budget. Um, and I think it's genuinely fascinating. I think it's fascinating to ask ourselves, do we believe that Andrea Pirlo, who clearly knows plenty about football, who was one of the finest midfielders of a generation, maybe ever, who... I believe, certainly can have that rapport like Zinedine Zidane did at Madrid with the players because he played recently, because he understands what it means to win at the highest level, because, frankly, players will listen to him. But that doesn't still mean that we know he can be a manager. We just don't. So I think it's it's it sort of starts there this season in Italy, the conversation for sure.
2: There, there are a few angles to this, really, aren't there, Nicky? Because I, I guess one of them would be... Juventus a club that are known for meticulous planning a club that are known for building their success off the back of a really solid business model has the arrival of Cristiano Ronaldo who has done nothing wrong he's done everything that has been expected of him on the field has the arrival of Cristiano Ronaldo led them to this point because Mm. it skewed their timeline so much that now the timeline is not a collective timeline it's a megastar timeline.
4: I think that's exactly it. And I think that this is, I mean, yeah. It, it, it again, I feel like I'm just repeating the word fascinating, but it is to me. I think that it's inescapable, this feeling that Juventus have looked at what happened at Madrid, where Zidane gets the job, where Zidane elevates Ronaldo again, because Zidane is maybe one of the very, very few people in the world who can look at Ronaldo and say, hey, you need to rest. We're going to prioritise the big games. We're going to let you do the best, um, give us... Everything you've got when we need it most, rather than against um, I don't know, Getafe here in my head, but there's <laughs> other teams I should name in the league before them. Um and 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 he'll listen because he knows that you're you and you've done this. Um except Zidane had two seasons coaching Madrid's B team, the Castilla team, which Pirlo doesn't have. So it isn't the same. But I feel like that is the narrative that has played into this. I think that if if it wasn't for Ronaldo, Perhaps it could have been a different direction. Perhaps you would have said, Okay, Pedro, take that time in the youth team. But the the time frame for Ronaldo is unknown, right? Mm. I mean, he's played two, he's played very well the last two seasons, and I think that's not in doubt. No one should should question that Ronaldo has contributed at Juventus, but he has, in the way that he does, made the team and the club orbit around him. That everything is about Ronaldo. And yes, they want to win the Champions League, and that's still the biggest priority. But I, I have questions about, and these questions can't be answered until we see them play, by whether or not this is going to let them maintain that domestic hegemony as well. I mean, it, it's worth saying that for all that Ronaldo has contributed and, and I don't think you blame him for these failures, Juventus haven't just sort of not gone back to their Champions League latter stages to the final in the last couple of years. They've lost to Ajax and Leon, mm-hmm. which with the greater sort of... Um, uh, already respect. sounds patronising as soon as Go I say on. that, doesn't it? It sounds
2: awful. Don't show them any respect. Uh, I don't want your respect.
4: But it's, it's not about what they were, because Ajax were brilliant that season. They were yeah, brilliant. Yeah, they were. Mm. But there is, um, there is, that still matters, is what I'm trying to say. But Juventus still look at those results and say, well, these aren't the clubs we're supposed to lose to. If we're going mm. to lose in Europe and we lose to PSG, Manchester City, Real Madrid, okay, we can sort of say, well... Our place in this hierarchy of super cups because that is how Juventus view themselves. It's as much as anything about how Juventus view
2: themselves. Yeah, because you're and... a hostage to fortune to a certain degree in the Champions League, mm. in the not always the best team wins it. In fact, quite as Miguel was saying last week, quite often the best team doesn't win it. Mm. But I think you can. It's got to be about the the manner as much as the the final result. But if we if we're going back to Serie A for a second, Dotten there's a relative neutral. How important is it, you think, that, that for, for the image of Serial, that a team that's not Juventus wins it? Well,
3: let me say first of all, I'm from the generation that where Juventus was Juventus. And <laughs> like Nicky says, they are a juggernaut.
2: <laughs> so, who were polished off by Ajax. And it's a really good question
3: because it, f- for my generation, okay, Juventus have always been there, they've, they've got a legacy there. But so, Vinta. Been there. So, have Mm. AC Milan been there? Uh, So, have Sampdoria been there? Napoli have been there? Other teams have been there. Now, it just seems like we're waiting at the beginning of the season for Juventus to lift the cup and to lift lift the title as well. Mm. And that doesn't make sense to me. And I wonder, actually, the the real question is, Nikki, whether with the lack of not competition, but with the lack of um, an equal rival, has Juventus gone downwards football-wise or not?
4: So, I, I want to say really quickly because I, I feel like I'm going to get slaughtered for what I said about Ajax and and Leon. It's not about how I perceive those clubs. It is about how Juventus perceives itself, which is this juggernaut yeah. conversation. It is about Andrea Agnelli who goes and stands up in front of the world and says, "Should we really have Atalantas in the Champions League?" Because that is that is how this club frames <laughs> yeah. itself. This club frames itself as part of a European elite, and that's where it belongs. Mm. Um, And I think that actually Agnelli has also said in those sorts of conversations many times, he wants there to be the other Italian super clubs being super again. He wants Mm. to see Milan being brilliant. He wants the Inter being brilliant. Of course, he wants to see his club ahead of them, but he wants them to be there. And I think what's interesting about this season for me, well, there's a hundred things I find interesting about the season. I do think those two Milan clubs who are structurally the teams that are that should be competing with Juventus over time. In any given season, anything can happen, but those two teams are, they have the fan base, not just nationally, but internationally. Mm-hmm. They have the sort of setup as a club to do it. There are signs that they could be there. I mean, Inter were already one point beh- behind last season. Of course, the last couple of games, Juventus already had it sewn up, but still Milan are also coming back in an interesting way. Post lockdown, they had the most, um, well, they were top of the table post lockdown mm. in Italy. They have a, a really, really interesting young midfield there now with Ishmael Benasset and Francessier, who both came on leaps and bounds under Stefano Pioli last season. Now you add in Sandro Tonali, who is one of the most intriguing young Italian midfield prospects going. Um, I think he has some rough edges that need to, to get shined off. But I think also not just sort of individually a fascinating talent, but I think he kind of does something different to those other two, which makes a really fascinating mesh. I think there are reasons to think that those things are coming up. Are they ready to challenge Juventus? I mean, in the end, it requires Juventus to slip. Mm. And that was the same as last season. Juventus did slip and Inter couldn't quite do it. But you need another season like that from Juventus to make it possible because a few seasons ago, Juventus were winning with 100 points. You know, it's 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 hard to, to overtake someone who's got 100 points. Napoli got 91, still didn't win the league. I've realised I still haven't actually answered your question. But <laughs> no, no, I only just realised I've gone way off what your question was. I I I understand where people come from with this idea that you can't win the Champions League if you're dominating domestically mm. this easily. Bayern Munich have won how many titles in a row now?
2: Yeah, nine. No, well, they're going for their ninth. Right, they're going for their ninth. If if you look and at before, it last before, season. before last season, um, Barcelona were eight out of eleven. Which well, we talked about it last week, didn't we? That the, the fact that you consider it. Um, to be an equal rivalry between Real Madrid and Barcelona is not been domestically mm. over the last couple of years. But before we go on to um, Pirlo versus Conte, which is mm. going to be really interesting, I think, because I think for, for most of us, we would say Inter are the best place. In fact, maybe Conte's sort of put some of his... Let's describe them as what they are. Feelings of hatred towards <laughs> the Inter board to one side because maybe he thinks... This is this is our chance. This is our really our chance to take the scudetto, or my mm-hmm. chance to take the scudetto off Juventus. As I suspect he's thinking of it. The thing that's interested me most about what we don't know about PLO as a coach is, is most of it. Because yeah. no one can know anything really about Pirlo, as especially a first team coach. But, you know, the thing that gives PLO room and space is the aesthetics. You know, what he's seen to represent as a player, as a football thinker, as a football philosopher, mm-hmm. his vision of the game. What's been really interesting to me, in his first couple of press conferences, he said, I want to tap into the old Juventus DNA. It's got to be about hard graft. It's got to be about organisation. It's got to be about being difficult to beat. And that takes us right back to Conte, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. That's,
4: if that is what he thinks the Juventus DNA is, it's because he was there under Conte mm. when, you know, Pirlo's career was still mostly at Milan. He had this great—I mean, he was—he was transformative for that team, frankly. Period at Juventus, but yes, that was the Conte Juventus, and that is very much the embodiment of Juventus that that the Conte was as a player as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how many different ways to say it. I'm fascinated to see what this team looks like on the pitch because that is the message he's sold: we're going to be a team that is a possession team. And we are going to, basically, if we lose the ball, the ambition is win it back as quickly as you can. So I'm expecting high tempo, pressing, aggression.
2: How does Ronaldo fit into that?
4: Well, I mean, what's funny is it's not exactly how you picture Pirlo as a player, is it? (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's a great question how Ronaldo fits into it. And the dynamic that I'm perhaps most sort of interested to see how it shakes out just between individual players is Dejan Kulusevski, who I think covered the third most ground of any player in Serie A last season. Oh, wow. Um, you're bringing in like a young 20, is he actually 20 or is he tiny, but over 20? 20, 20 odd um, player who potentially could be a foil to Ronaldo up front and could contribute some of that in theory. But again, I won't know what this team looks like until we see it this weekend.
3: Seems like the DNA of Juventus is still up for grabs though. Mm. Um, particularly when you bring in, um, a legend like Pirlo is to coach that actually his vision of the DNA might be very different from the actual DNA if you see what I mean
4: yeah well do you know like it's funny when you when you talk about Juventus' DNA my mind just immediately goes to um, a couple of things one is this sort of slogan that they've lived by the last few seasons which is hashtag fino alla fine which means until the end and I think that has been what I would sort of see as the recent embodiment of Juventus because there have been times when you've thought, oh, maybe they're not going to do it this season but they always come up with a goal at the end. They always do that. So they have that. The other thing is just the old Giampiero Bonaperti line which was winnings um, not important. It's the only thing that counts. That's always been the club's DNA. <laughs> that's
3: not bad. That's, that's not a bad been, line.
4: It's always been the club's DNA. It doesn't matter
3: like a Bill how Shanky you get quote, there. As it? long yeah. as it
4: is. It's very Bill Shankly. In fact, the first, um, um, th- there was a Bill Shankly quote which I can't remember now. And I was like, wasn't that a Bonaparte quote? This happened like really recently. Um, but um, to think there's any sort of identity here beyond one that could also be embodied by the old um, Oakland Raiders owner Al Davis, just win, baby. That's that's Juventus to me. Juventus yeah. just win and they do.
3: Uh, a couple of other stories from Italy as well. You wanted to talk about uh, Roma, have new owners. What's new?
4: So far, not a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a certain degree of, of everyone needs to be patient. They haven't come in and immediately, um, tipped all these billions that the Friedkin family have into the project yet. Um, they have sort of preached a fairly, um, sensible line of look, we still have to balance the books and we still have to, um, focus first and foremost on the stadium project and, and bring in those revenues that can allow the club to grow sustainably. Um, it, sort of in the immediate term, what seems to be happening is loss before gains because one thing, simply unfortunate circumstance, Nicolò Zagnolo, who's been so brilliant when he's been on the pitch the last um, season, but second crucial ligament tear suffered while away on international duty is just a hammer blow to that team, in my opinion. And then Edin Dzeko, um is close to a move oh, to Juventus. Yeah. yeah, Which would leave... Um, obviously a pretty big void. Now, the club is in talks to try and sign Arkadish Milik. They're also looking at some other young players. Milik isn't young, but they're looking at some younger players like Kumbula. It could be an interesting team, but too early to say.
2: How old is Jeko now? He must have see- Get, thirty-four, on I want to say. I'm, I'm terrible gracious. on footballer ages. I mean, it's impressive it's though. It's impressive. We're still yeah. playing top five football at the age of thirty-four. Great addition to that pressing style that yeah. uh, Pirlo is <laughs> looking for. It's it's really interesting contradiction, isn't it? That idea of like we're gonna we're gonna play in this sort of you know like a sort of butcher's dog chasing scraps kind of way with a load of old guys up front because mm. of course they're looking at they've been looking at Luis Suarez as well who. Still has it. Of course he has. But he doesn't have all of it. (laughs) He doesn't have the athletic part of it anymore, does he?
4: No. I mean, I don't think Suarez is going to happen at this point. There's been a whole saga with that because he was trying to sort out his Italian citizenship to make things easier and uh, had language exams booked and everything. But what I'm hearing is that that deal seems to have gone on the back burner now.
3: Well, it'll be interesting to see if Luis Suarez sorts out his Italian citizenship. I I think uh, he might be able to get Ghanaian citizenship after the World Cup (laughs) in 2010 I'm just saying I'm just saying (laughs) if he wants it it's going to get the flick in and Muslera oh cleared on the line and cleared on the line a second the uh, referee's assistant is flagging
4: what a dramatic there's a red card coming out as well well there's to be drama
3: right at the end here and the red card is shown Suarez is sent off Let's move on to talk about Bayern Munich now, who are in many ways, I suppose, the Juventus of Germany, aren't they? They're that likeable,
2: yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's fair well, to say. Well, they win
3: everything is a point, wasn't
2: it? They do, and I think it's a good point, Dotton, because uh, just like Juventus going for 10 in a row, Bayern are going for 9 in a row. And really, I think when you're looking at the, the, the whole title picture in the Bundesliga, you have to look at a way that Bayern can kind of sabotage themselves. Going back to what you were saying, Nicky, really about, about Juventus. And um, it's hard to see that at the moment because I think it's pretty clear that they're not only um, the Champions League holders. Unlike a lot of Champions League holders, I think it's fair to say they are the best team in Europe. Um the questions for them...
3: What makes them the best? Sorry to cut you. What makes them the best team in Europe, do you think? I, Apart from winning everything,
2: but what I, makes them the best? I think it's how everything's gone under Hansi Flick is has been extraordinary, really. A coach who not just connects with the players on an emotional level, but is tactically astute. And I think it's quite unusual to get both of those. And you're not expecting to get both of those from someone who's got, you know, really no head coach experience at a top club before is, is extraordinary, um, but improved and inspired backup appointment by, by the club. And also I think what's so frightening about Bayern is when you look at, apart from um, say Neuer Lewandowski, maybe to a lesser extent, you're on Boateng. It's a young team that you expect to get better and better and better. It screams dynasty. But, as I was saying in my Guardian piece earlier this week, if you're looking for that act of self-sabotage, good old Uli Ernest <laughs> comes in. And, you know, he is only the honorary president now, having stepped down as actual active club president um, a little while ago. Um, but it turns out, even though he is, you know, kind of still inside the buy intent, he's definitely the guy you want inside the tent pissing out rather than <laughs> outside the tent pissing in. And the problem is he's never going to be able to stop himself chatting to TV and radio. And they're in this position at the moment, this very delicate position with, well, it has been with Thiago Alcantara and David Alaba. Now with Thiago is moved to liverpool by the time you're listening to this i suspect will have already happened they're very very close Are you sure about that uh, uh, no i said i suspect yes <laughs> that's yes. why i said i suspect but I, I think that is something that is a loss that karl-heinz rummenigge can can live with uh, he he would have liked him to stay but he said well look he's a, he's a foreign player with a year left on his contract it's going to be his last big contract I, I understand he wants to he wants to try something else that's maybe not all of what he thinks, but it's the diplomatic way of putting it, and it's the reasonable way of think, thinking about it, and it's the path of least resistance. Also, you have to bear in mind, as brilliant as Chaga was in the Champions League final, if Benjamin Pavar is fully fit, he doesn't play. Pavar uh, plays at right back, and Joshua Kimmich, who's, you could argue, the real leader of the team, plays in the centre alongside Leon Goretzka the impressively muscled Leon Goretzka, as I have to call him. Just like you have to call niece Patrick <laughs> Vieira's niece. You have to call him the newly muscled Leon Goretzka or, or, or whatever. Anyway, so Thiago looks like it's fine. The problem is David Alaba. The problem is not Alaba That's himself. That's a big problem, mate. That's a huge yeah, problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem, as mm. you say, because he's into his last year of contract. Not he's got one year of contract left, but bear in mind, we were in September because of the, the, the weird time synchronicity of things at the moment and his contract is going to be up on july 30th uh, june 30th next year now alaba is hugely important to them not just on the pitch and on the pitch he's come off a career season where he's been unbelievable at center back he's added value to the team on the pitch in that sense and also in the sense that he's been next to alphonso davis really on pitch coaching him into one of the best left backs and probably future best left back in, in, in the world. And it's one of the things, you know, all the things you notice when there's no crowd noise. And that was certainly the case for the first couple of Bundesliga oh. games. The first thing we know you notice who the talks are in the team. David Alaba never shuts up. And that is extremely valuable, not just to Davies, but to the whole of the team. He's loved in the changing room. He's a model pro. Um, he's also got Pini Shajavi as his, his agent. Um, it's a problem. Uh, well, it's a problem for Bayern because they don't really like being told, uh, and that that's an issue. Now, of course, Uli Hernis did this now infamous interview on Sport One uh, a Television Station in Germany last weekend, saying, call, "Calling Jahavi, um a, a greedy piranha," uh, which has <laughs> issues in my view, has issues in that it could be considered a little anti-Semitic as as, as well, which mm. is, is, is far from ideal. Um, and I, I think it, it wouldn't kill Uli Hernis to apologise for something for once, um, if, if it could be construed in that way. Um, also, the fact is that, that Bayern are treading on eggshells. They know they can't afford to lose this guy. And they've gone there before with, I know Tony Kroos has been mentioned, um, a player who they would have liked to keep on but didn't want to pay the full whack. With Alaba, I don't see how it can be a choice. He's so valuable in so many ways. And as, you know, a, a, a house player as well, someone who's come through at Bayern, someone who's a Mr. Bayern, they can't afford to let him go. They need to seal this up. And I tell you what, A, is stressing out Hansi Flick. He's made that pretty clear in, in public. He's tried to sort of try to sidestep it and say, oh, well, it's not really my business. Hopefully um, he stays, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's got to be something on the mind of Hansi Flick. And really, that could just do for once with Julie Hernis keeping his mouth shut about this. That would be really nice. Is,
3: is he likely to, Nicky? You know, Uli Hernis, He can't stop having a proper Mesut Ozil every t- opportunity he gets amongst other things. I
4: don't think so. I think if you wanted him to be... I was just sort of... Because in a sense, he's like... Um, he's taken on the role of like the awkward uncle at a family gathering. Or, or Is it a similar. bit
2: Stadler and That's Waldorf, do we think? Or yeah. well, Rummenigge will come upstairs to join him in a bit in, in the in the little balcony. <laughs>
4: and so I was sort of thinking like, how do you... How do you sort of stop the awkward uncle from ruining everything at your, at yeah, your party? And it's, it's not always easy. The best thing is possibly to distract them, give them something else to do, give them just which is sort of, I suppose, you know, it's what you said before, beautifully put about <laughs> inside the tent and outside the tent. <laughs> you know, you give him a job because you think that might help, I think, rather than rather than having him be outside and just sort of starting fires. Maybe you think you can sort of direct
2: him a bit. But um, it doesn't feel like that's happened. He's, he's always been forthright, but he's just been—he's he's just been so much more combustible. You know, when people get to a certain point of age and they just don't care anymore. Yeah, that's exactly
4: yeah. it. Like that's exactly the sort of relative that I'm imagining. And they, <laughs> yes. just, they don't care. There's, there's, you're not going to stop them that way. And I actually think in certain situations, that's probably an asset to you as a club mm. because, frankly, there are times when you might not want to say something because mm. diplomatically it looks bad. But you can let early harness say it and go. Nothing we could do. It's just what we say. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I can see that. But, I can. see Yeah. It. But I, as you say, this is you know. There's also a, a fine line, and at the moment he's he's sort of across it, basically.
2: On the other hand, Doton, they have added Leroy Sane, which just seems absolutely brutal when you think of the quality, the power they've 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 got at their disposal already, and he should be totally refreshed. I mean. We're looking at a, a situation where basically we've got to worry a little bit, I think, about the quality of football going forward because n- no players all over Europe have really had a proper preseason. Now, someone coming off a long term injury is an exception to that. They've done, on the contrary, like a really, really, really long preseason. He's been doing a preseason for what the best part of a year, I suppose. So if Sane were to take the team. By the horns, that that wouldn't really surprise me this much. I think the interesting thing is in this title race, if it's going to be a title race, you can only really imagine it being between Bayern and Dortmund. Because I think we saw what Leipzig did in the Champions League, and it feels to me that the model has a bit of a ceiling, you know? Uh that they weren't really prepared for getting that far in the Champions League. They're not really prepared to build on it because They want to do the same thing that they've always done. They want to buy players who are 20, 21, 22 and then sell them on for a a fortune later on. Um, You know, they're they're not going to bring in experienced guys who are in their late 20s for like 40, 50 million. It's just not going to happen even if they do have the money. Um, I think as well, you look at Leverkusen, I still think could be pretty good. They've got Patrick Schick, who was on loan at Leipzig and was 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 very very good. Obviously, Nicky knows very well from from Italy. He had a great season for most of last season when he started to get his rhythm. I think he's helpful for Leverkusen, but at the end of it, they've still lost Kai Havertz, who's who's their main guy. Um, Borussia mentioned Gladbach. I think you've got to look at the balance of them building, and they've not lost any major players, but that they are playing Champions League. And you look at the Champions League schedule, the way it's been condensed, this is going to be really hard on players all over the place, even for big clubs, because it's almost Champions League every week between mid-October and Christmas, which is going to be tough. So really, it does come down to Bayern and Dortmund. Now, the, the, the question with Dortmund is what is acceptable? Because no one's going to come out and say, right, we have to win the league this year but they can't really get away with finishing below the second. They've got a coach in the last year of his contract in Lucien Favre, who I think would have got binned if they felt there was an upgrade out there. I don't think they think there is a realistic upgrade out there at the moment. Um, But there's been a sense that maybe he's holding the team back a little bit. Also, they've got this image of being these wonderful, bright young things because of Horland, Sancho, still there. Um... Reina, Gio Rainer, uh Jude Bellingham, who became the the, the youngest player, as we were saying, on the Ramble earlier this week, the youngest player in Dortmund's history to score for them in 17 years 77 days. Can but, talk
4: about what a great name Jude Bellingham is? <laughs> I it's like
2: a name. Like, don't you? like That yeah, should be like a movie
4: star name. Jude
2: yeah, Bellingham. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah, could be. Works, works I for love me. it. Well, it I'm, I'm sure Amazon Prime can make it happen. <laughs> I'm sure they can. Copyright the name, mate. <laughs> but I, I think when you look at this image and then you look at... The reality of it, the fact that they've, in the last year, signed Hummels, Emre John, Toma Mounier, add that to Axel Witzel like, the year before that, you don't buy these players to tread water. They're expensive, mm-hmm. salary-wise, these guys, and they, they come to the club because they think they can win. So, what can they realistically do? Because... Can they win the Bundesliga? It's going to be hard. It's going to need at least some partial implosion. They're going to need to do brilliantly and have some sort of buying implosion somewhere along the line. Can they win the Champions League? Well, they could, but are they likely to? You know, I think there's, there's so much in the... Going back to what we said about events, actually, there's so much about the manner rather than just the end result that I think is going to dictate where Dortmund are by the end of this season.
4: I think there's like a to sort of bring back to what I was saying before about Juventus I think there's something embedded in like clubs and it's not fixed or permanent because clubs do change over time but there's there's identities that clubs hold and mm. and that's where I was sort of talking before about inter and Milan even when they weren't and they haven't been let so much lately at the top of the game they still carry that sort of big club identity to them and I think perhaps Dortmund, have had that and maybe they they, you know they still have it. and to be clear again like Dortmund were a better footballing team than Inter last season as proved in the group stage so it's not mm. about the quality of the team but i feel like the identity that Dortmund have right now is the place where all of the world's best young players should go and be brilliant for a little bit before heading
2: on it's european football hogwarts is what you're saying
4: yeah basically yeah. but i mean it's genuinely brilliant i'm not sort of saying that in a patronizing way they are really producing some of the best football in Europe through it but there's still a certain deference in that. Bellingham's move to Dortmund rather than Manchester United who also wanted him has been framed in lots of places as because he knew that if he went to Dortmund he would play and it would be brilliant Mm. whereas he went to Manchester United who are a worse club by the way he at least in the footballing terms the moment in my opinion yeah he would not play as much so it's not about the quality of the football you're putting out, but it is still something. It's like, a, there's, there's almost like a a sort of embedded idea there that we are not Munich. We're doing something different that is brilliant. But I just wonder if that, yeah, that limits them in some way. I don't know.
2: It's, it's really important in terms of perception that I think, because um, funnily enough, the criticism of some of the match going fans has been, We've, we've become like a, a junior Bayern. Mm. You know, There there is that sense in the sense that they're trying to sell themselves pretty hard internationally. Um, in a very different way to Bayern, but they are trying to sell themselves pretty hard internationally. And they have invested a lot of money in these cornerstone players. So on the other hand, it does make, as you say, Bellingham, Sancho, Horland, and the image they project really really important but I Cause, agree cause with what it's you said like saying identity
4: is, is beneficial to them in that mm. it is the oh, reason yeah, that is. Haaland goes there it's the reason that Bellingham goes there like it's not all negative I just sort of wonder how it plays domestically with the sort of ability to challenge Bayern Munich in a structural way in an, in, in an individual season I absolutely believe they can get ahead of Bayern Munich because yeah. again Leicester won the Premier League this isn't something that just sort of happens um In one place, that's not a Premier League specific story. Any team with the right combination of magic and the right players can do it, and Dortmund does structurally again, set up to succeed more than Leicester are because the players they have are better. But I just sort of, I wonder. I don't know. I suppose again, without wanting to keep bringing it back to Italy, and I'm sorry. Like I sort of see this possibility long term, long term mind that. Inter and Milan could be back on a level with the events at some point because they have that sort of stature about them. Yes, I don't know if I believe that can happen with Dortmund.
3: Have, have they started in Italy to bring fans back in the way that Germany has started to bring fans back? Because interesting sort of uh, dynamic when you look at the games in Germany, which are regionally um, decided upon, uh, as to whether they can have fans in or not, depending on the COVID numbers, et cetera, you can see the difference or feel the difference, certainly from one match to another, because mm-hmm. they have a certain number of fans in or less fans or more fans in or no fans at all. Have they started doing that in Italy?
4: Not yet. Um, it's an ongoing conversation, but I believe until the end of September, it's still no fans. Um, of course the, the season hasn't started yet. So it starts this weekend, but but I, I don't. Um, yeah, there has not been a clear statement on what happens past September yet. But there is certainly hope that it will happen soon. But it hasn't yet.
3: Because we've seen it in the cup matches in Germany so far, mm-hmm. and I wonder what lessons we can learn about the way that they're manipulating. I know some of the stadiums aren't don't have more than twenty percent
2: fans. Yeah, that's the maximum that's going to be allowed for this Bundesliga weekend. Yeah, but right.
3: it still made a huge difference. You know, it felt like. The, the matches that I watched, just watching them online, it felt like football was back again with the fans. And, it does. And I, I, you could feel the energy with the players as well. It was <laughs> slightly different energy, I think.
2: It does. And I, th- I think the, the the one you're angling towards, Dutton, is that Hansen Rostock-Hamburg one where they had 10,000 in. The biggest crowd in Germany so far, that that will be matched this weekend. Um Dortmund are going to have 10,000 in for their game against Borussia Mönchengladbach, which is like the Saturday night, which is like their gala game spot. Um, So, I I mean, that, that that was particular because that's way out in the Wild East. That's also a third of the stadium capacity, which is not something that's going to be in any of the Bundesliga games this weekend. Now, I think it is a very positive thing. And I think the way they've framed it is very similar to what worked for them with the hygiene protocol when they brought the Bundesliga back in the first place. Like they've said, right, we're going to have um, limited attendances, 20% maximum over a six-week trial period. And I think those words, over a six-week trial period, are very important because you have um, the chief exec of the the, the, the Bundesliga, uh, Christian Seifert, who said... Going back to before the Bundesliga restarted after the pandemic, he said, okay, well, this is the plan, but each match day, and I've said it before, and obviously it's quite a used quote, each match day, we're fighting to earn the next match day. And I think that's very important because I think in this particular environment, setting anything and assuming that it's all going to run to plan is a bit crazy, right? There was no social
3: distancing, by the way. Mm. Uh, a lot of people wore masks, which was great to see in mm. a way. But I can imagine others looking on those games and thinking, well, hang on a second, they're not social
2: distancing at the match. Why should we? I, th- I think, that's, I think that's, real- that's going to be a problem. I think that's why they've said it at 20%, done. Because mm. if you look at um, Hansa Rostock game that we, we, we were talking about, like I said, a third of the capacity. And uh, it was quite a keenly contested game. You're right. I think the amount of fans that were in there and the atmosphere they created had a direct influence on the sort of match it was and it sort of certainly had an influence on tony leisner hamburg debutant climbing into the crowd and having a go at one of the um, fans at the end i
4: I wanted to ask about that and whether you think the fact specifically that there are less fans in the stadium means that players in the same way that we've heard more which players are making themselves Mm. heard Are you going to hear individual insults in a more personal way? It's a great question.
3: It's a great question. And I think that question might actually feed into what we're going to move into
1: next.
3: So let's draw a line under the Bundesliga and let's turn our attentions to the French League. You love the way I said it. Or should it be Oon? Go on. You tell me it should be Oon instead no, no, of an. No, okay. un, oh, no, un. no, it's <laughs> I No, make. <laughs> make, make a fool of yourself. Trying to create a domestic. I, I may, I, I may have got an E, which was a fail, by the way. No, I think it was a D actually in French, but it doesn't mean that, uh, I can't, I don't know the difference between an and Oon. No, the reason why I said that is because there was a match this week, 5,000 fans in the thing. And yet there was still an old style kind of. Punch up, really, uh, that we haven't seen for quite a while.
2: Well, it is Paris Saint-Germain versus Marseille. It's, it's, it's something that so we, we, we can't overlook. Yeah, they're uh,
3: rivals, but so what? The kind of punch up that we saw was like a punch up over nothing. It seemed like
2: it was. It was next level, and um, I, I think really the thing that's really struck me about the opening of Liga, apart from the fact that I think the fans have made a difference, particularly you go back to the first game, even though there were only five thousand there, that Paris Saint-Germain played this season on the. Th- Thursday before that when they lost at Lens um, I think the, the the thing that really struck me is that the fact that the the, the refereeing has been terrible in this first week it's been really awful and whereas you can't strictly blame the referee for what the players did because it was pretty unsightly and the bands have started to come down now Alevin Kazava who attacked Jordan Amavi you know threw a punch at him and then Went and planted a flying kick on him. He's been banned for six matches. Amavi's been banned for three. Um, you've got Neymar out for two. Paredes out for two. Uh, Benedetto, who's the other player who sent off, just just out out for one. Interestingly, Benedetto was the, the the peacemaker. He was stopping Neymar going off. But what what I was going to say is, while you wouldn't say that that the referee made them do those things. He didn't deal with a lot of the issues that were boiling for the entire game much earlier. So to me, the most surprising thing was not the punch-up. How did Neymar last the whole 90 minutes before, without the referee either booking him or having a word with him at the, at, the, at the very least to try and take some of the heat out of the situation? Why didn't maybe the PSG coaching staff step in because they've got eyes, they can they can see their star player absolutely on the brink of losing his shit for more than an hour for, it seems, very justifiable reasons because he's having this dispute with Alvaro Gonzalez where there's a, a bit of back and forth. Um, Neymar obviously accused him twice of, well, made the accusation twice of uh, Alvaro Gonzalez using racist language towards him. Once in the first half, again, the refereeing team didn't do anything about it. At the end, by the time he's, he's off the pitch, the fourth official's thinking it's all gone off, less all sorted up out afterwards, and he's he's already off anyway. Um, how this pans out, I think, will be really really interesting because. Um, the, the 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 French League have, have got a lot of eyes on them for this and they should have a lot of eyes on them for this. Not just because it's Neymar and because he's a world superstar and because it's a world story. But I think if we rewind a little bit to when Mario Balotelli was at Nice, the subject of racial abuse from the stands and the authorities did nothing about it. Absolutely nothing about it. And it caused the same thing with Balotelli he protested to the referee, the referee booked him for 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 gobbing off to him. And then you get this investigation, and we're in this similar stage now. There's going to be a deeper investigation into what Alvaro Gonzalez has is, as is, is allegedly said to Neymar. Now, um, the French league have commandeered all the footage, including um a sort of solo cam that followed Neymar around the pitch from being sports, who are one of the the rights holders. So they're well, they're coming all the way through this now. Neymar, on the other hand, has been accused of making homophobic insults to Alvaro. So, we're going to see how that pans out now. Obviously, there's because there's this sort of lag between what actually happened and the investigation, it means a couple of things. Firstly, there's a load of time for everyone to talk about it, and yes, in Spain. El Confidencial did write a huge thing about Alvaro Gonzalez and how he's been through liking tw- uh, tweets from the leader of Vox, which I, I think is, is, is not insignificant. We can't pretend that's insignificant. Um, but also, the pressure builds up on the league to deal with it. And having just really disgraced themselves in the way they didn't deal with Balotelli, they need to get this right. They have to get this right. I,
4: I, I'm sort of fascinated by this from a whole bunch of different angles, but it did, looking at, at just what we can see. And I think, you know, the context of what was said to Neymar is is so fundamental to this. It's really mm. hard to unpick, but looking at what we know, which is just the actions that happened, I was almost surprised that Neymar only got a two game ban. Because if you're going to give Kozawa a six game ban, it seems almost like getting off lightly
2: for I th- that. I think it's the degree of violence because basically just... Tapped him on the he, head. He just clipped him around ra- the back of the head. I mean, mm. Kizarro looked... He looked like what he is, a fringe player who wants to prove how much it means to him, mm. I, I thought. Um, but, I, I mean, Neymar did say afterwards, If uh, he tweeted quite soon after the game, didn't he? The only regret I have is not hitting that idiot in the face. And I think it's what a lot of people think in moments like that. If I was going to get sent off, I might as well get full value for it. Um,
3: We're but, not talking about the football, though. Nobody's talked about the football. Nobody's talking yeah. about no, the football. Do you know,
2: we've not even it's, mentioned that Angel Di Maria is also under investigation in this, of all times, for spitting at Alvaro Gonzalez. Oh, no. As well. Di Maria. Yeah. Uh, and I seeing, seeing his... Is, he's the only player who looks like creating anything for them. I mean, as we speak, they've just got their first win of the season. They beat Mets 1-0 last night for a goal from Julian Draxler, who they've been doing everything to, to shift and sell <laughs> in stoppage time, created by Anhel Di Maria, who looks like the only player who's making everything anything happen at the sure. moment. So they've they've got almost to the end of their first three league games without scoring a goal. They got into stoppage time of the third league game without scoring a goal. And even bearing in mind the COVID absences that we've talked about, everything else, that's remarkable. Which of those two
3: teams do do you feel, Nicky, will suffer the most uh, from the bans and everything else from from this punch-up?
4: I think in the short term, in the short term, PSG suffer because I think that this team that just went to a Champions League final, to me, is still fundamentally... Just massively reliant on two players. Um, I think that that it shouldn't be, but I think that the difference in what PSG produce when Neymar and Mbappe are on the pitch together, specifically, to when they're not, is is night and day. And I think that you take any of that away, and, and, and they
2: lose something really big. I do. I think. I think the other interesting thing is talking about how the coaches can look ahead and spy trouble. I think it's quite interesting that Andre Villas Boas took off his most two important players who they rely on Payet and Tovar who, who are both let's not beat around the bush prolific baiters of Paris Saint-Germain <laughs> mm. and, um, and he took them off earlier on uh, sensible
4: but at the same time as saying that it is only for Neymar a couple of games do I think that this season doesn't still end with PSG in first place mm. no I don't think that
3: <laughs> Look, there's more to be said about this uh, punch-up and we'll get to that when it comes back and revisits us. But for now, let's bring this to a conclusion. We've asked you both to suggest a game of the week of your own choice that we should all be watching. Uh, Who wants to go first?
4: I mean, mine's super obvious because we've spent half of this podcast talking about him, but it's Pirlo's first game. It's Pirlo's first game as manager. He is literally on... Monday of this week, he was at Coverciano at the Scuola Allenatori, the the manager's school for, for for Italian managers, defending his thesis so he could get his UEFA Pro license. He's just done that. He's managed a friendly against Nevada, which they won five 0 but twelve um eleven substitutions, so it's not a game you're going to get a lot from. Oh. His first game is this weekend. It's against Sampdoria, coached by someone at the other end of the spectrum, Claudio Ranieri, who's been around forever and has coached every team in Italy. It feels like sometimes so. I think, look, competitively, with a new manager or not, that's a game Juventus should expect to win pretty easily. Sampdoria are not awful, but they are very much a middle-of-the-road, top-flight team at the moment with reliance on a really, as much as he's defied age and not young, Fabio Quagliarella up front. Oh. Um, I, think, uh, I think it'll be fascinating to see how that goes. I expect Juventus to win but I, I want to see how they win and how they play.
2: And that's Sunday night, right? Yes. Right. And Andy? In that case, I'm going to go for something from the other end of the weekend. Uh, I'm going to go for Friday night for cow versus Benfica. Now, we touched on the ramble on Benfica's really uh, dreadful failure to not qualify for the Champions League after spending... 82 million euros on transfer fees alone on players. Forget about the salaries and all that sort of stuff to have um, in the Champions League qualifier against Pauk, to have um, Vertonghen score an own goal, one of those signings, and then Andrea Zivkovic, a player who they paid to leave just over a week ago, come and score the winner against them. And Georges Jesus, after the first match of his second spell, is under the cosh already. It's changed the way they look at things. Instead of like buying in a few of his favourites from Flamengo, which are still aiming to do, they might have to sell a player now. Like the immediate money that they get up front for qualifying for the Europa League is about about an eighth of what they would have got from the Champions League. So this is something that has a massive effect on them this season. They built a squad to challenge in the Champions League. So there's a lot of pressure on straight away. Also, because of the timing of it, as we said, it's on Friday night. You can get it on on the live score app. You can watch it for free. But they got the league to position this on Friday night because they thought, well, when we knock off Pauk, we'll be playing Krasnodar next week. It's a long trip to Russia. We need a few extra days off. But in fact, they're not going there. And they've brought the game forward. So they've got relatively little rest time. And for Melikau, having been promoted last season, okay, they've lost a few players, but... It's a tough place to go. Porto lost there in the in the, in the title run in at, at the end of the the resumed season. So it's not going to be easy for them. We're going to see Jorge Jesus like I think, anguishly putting his hands through that lustrous hair a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, we
3: came for the football, but thank you, Andy, um, and thank you to Nicky Bandini of the Guardian and Andy Brassel, sometime of the Guardian as well. That's it for this edition of On the Continent.